0: Hey guys, Brian Davis here from Spark Runnel. Super excited to be with you as always. And I am so pumped to be here today with Sam Wilson. Sam is a friend of mine going back, I don't know what, four years now, Sam? Somewhere mm-hmm. in that range. Something like that, yeah. So Sam, thank you for joining us. And we are going to have an amazing conversation today with Sam about all the things that he's done right over the last few years, all the things that he's done wrong over the last few years, and how you can learn from both of those both of those categories. So Sam, I'm actually going to take a page out of your book from your podcast. So Sam is the founder of the Brick and Investment Group. He's the host of the outstanding podcast, How to Scale Commercial Real Estate. So Every time Sam has a guest in that podcast, he asks them. He opens the show by asking in ninety seconds or less: "Tell us where you're coming from, where you're headed, and how you've gotten to where you are today." So, Sam, let's let's hear it from you this time.
1: Man, I've never had anybody turn the tables on me like that. Ninety seconds is tough. No, uh -uh, I appreciate (laughs) this. Ninety seconds or less. Where'd you start? Where'd you get there? Or how'd you get there? And where are you now? Uh, I started humble roots. um, You know, my family grew up pretty poor. We learned how to work really, really young. I remember uh, in the single digits going on job sites with my dad late at night, coming home. Like we just didn't have a lot, but what we did get was a work ethic. And I think when you grow up with a work ethic, I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. I'm not terribly bright, but I do know how to work really stinking hard. With that, you know, growing up poor, you always decide that no matter what, you're going to be able to provide for yourself. And so that's something you can't take away. That said, there also comes with that the double edged sword of always thinking you need to keep providing and doing more. So I've tried everything, I think, under the sun. We mentioned some mentioned career yesterday, and I'm like, career? What's a career? I don't know, man. Like, I've tried everything there is out there, and and I'm sticking with what I'm doing right now. I love what I'm doing right now. But that said, I've done a lot of different things. I've been in real estate now for 11 years, which is crazy to say. In that 11 years, I've done every iteration of real estate. Uh, where am I now? I am... We own a bunch of laundromats. We have a laundry fund. We own a bunch of land across the Southeast. We are passive investors in a bunch of deals around the country with other sponsors. We've also kept been capital partners on a bunch of deals around the country from self-storage to multifamily to the list goes on. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's that, but our primary focus right now is in the laundry, laundry business, we own RV parks. We've got to, again, hands in a lot of different things. Um, but how to get there? And again, it just goes back to being willing. I don't, I don't, uh, I think I'm learning what the word risk means in a, in a very painful way right now, and we can talk about that if you'd like. But uh, I think I got there by just being willing to go out and do it, and then figure it out along the way. So hopefully that was 90 seconds or less, but probably not.
0: <laughs> it was close. Uh, no, that that's great. So you know, I've actually I've invested with you in one of the mm-hmm. deals that you've raised funds for. Yep. You and I were talking before the show that you know it's been a, a difficult year for you in some cases, we're talking about 2023, uh, we're now in early 2024, but 2023, your fund has done great, but some of the deals that that you co-sponsored, that you raised money for, and yep. some of the deals that that you invested in passively yourself as a limited partner, as, as an L P, some of those have not gone according to plan uh, over the last year. And there's been a lot of that going around in 2023. Right. Uh, it was a, a very difficult year in this space. So one of the things that I really appreciated, you and I spoke in late 2023, and and you were quite visibly upset about how a deal that you had helped raise funds for had gone sideways. And I really, I appreciated how personally you took that, even though it wasn't your deal, you didn't mess up, but you felt very personally responsible for the the funds that you had raised for that deal and and worried about the, the people that you put in there so I, I just want to hear some of your thoughts about what how investors can protect themselves now from mm-hmm. you know those sorts of problems you know hitting their portfolios you know as we invest through 2024 and beyond I think a couple things one this goes back to me not knowing what risk is
1: wisdom has tuition right like if you're going to become wise, you're going to pay a price, just like you go to school, like you get to learn something you generally pay. So wisdom's tuition is it's pretty expensive. I'll just say that. So one thing I would recommend if you're looking at a deal is to get a lot of other people's input on it, have them pick it apart. And this is my mistake. I made decisions in a vacuum where I was like, hey, man, I think this guy's a great guy. I love what they're doing. I think the asset's a great asset. There's loads of runway here. Like, why would we not get in? As opposed to going, hey, here's five people I know that are 10 years older than me in the business. Let me reach out to them. And if you don't know them, find them on LinkedIn. Find them in groups like yours where you have a 100 other people there that you can say, hey, I'm going to submit this deal. What's some good pros and cons to this? What do you guys like about it? What do you hate about it? Why would you or why wouldn't you invest? And have have people give you reasons why not to do it. Because I'm one of those people that probably know more because in, the, in 2023, I'm probably close to a million dollars that I need to go repay to my investors, which I will do. It's, it's, it is wholly on my list of things in the next 24 to 36 months to repay those investors. And I think we can because they got in because I got in, but they got in because I got in and I got in with, you know, rose colored glasses on, glasses on. And, um, all that said, that's what I would do. I would probably go back if I could rewind three years ago and go, Hey, Sam, take this deal to five people, you know, that are older and wiser than you in the business and see what they think. Because more than likely they'd have been like, yeah, I don't know, man. Here's some, here's some, here's some reasons why you shouldn't get into it. And we had, and, and that was on one major deal. We lost quite a bit of money with a co-sponsor. And then there was some other deals I did passively, the passive investor that lost quite a bit of money for, for, I mean, completely, you know, unrelated reasons. But now that I'm going back and I've been going through some forums and talking about these deals that are going sideways, just getting some other people's input. And they shed some light on some things. I was like, I never even considered that. Like one of them was a, uh, uh, a non-performing note fund, which I mean, just spit off cash for like four years straight at like 12 and a half, 13% annually, just doing great, 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 great. What they ended up doing was when interest rates rose, they got all these notes re-performing in like 2020, right? Think about this 2020. What are they right. going to reset them at? Three, 4%. Well, now that interest rates are at seven and eight, what do you think the value of those notes is on the secondary market? Nothing. Nobody wants them. So yeah. they're completely illiquid investments, and then, if those three percent or four percent now reperforming notes stop performing, their value goes to zero because there's no buyer for it. So there's no liquidity into this fund as well. I mean tens of millions of dollars in that fund. And it just went sideways. So there's a lot, of, and somebody painted that picture for me. They're like, hey, well, here's that here's four four reasons why I would never have invested in this. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. Got it. So those are some of the things I would probably do. And again, I've probably answered your question and a lot more than what you asked for. But that's where I <laughs> start.
0: <laughs> well, there's so much there that you just said that I appreciate. I mean, first of all, I do completely agree that wisdom has tuition. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've lost a ton of money on real estate over the years. Fortunately, it was all my money and not <laughs> not other people's money. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it it does. It it, it takes losses to learn what you're doing um, and to grow as a person. You know, so. You know, skills, you know, that requires tuition, you know, that education and the, they're kind of hard skills kind of stuff and the personal wisdom and equanimity that also requires tuition. So I love that you said that, you know, if, if going into it today, you know, as someone who's continuing to invest in real estate, you're focused more on risk than on reward and upside and how you can reduce that risk further by crowdsourcing that risk analysis. Uh, I mean, that's one of our main focuses in our co-investing club, right? So every month we get together, we vet deals together, Mm -hmm. and people are just firing questions left and right at different sponsors. You know, questions that, may not have ever occurred to me. In fact, in many cases, did not occur to me. People bring niche knowledge, like we have a woman in our club who works in the insurance industry, who's just grilling sponsors left and right about their insurance projections for premium growth over the next few years. Uh, People with niche knowledge about certain markets. We had a woman who lives five minutes down the street from an apartment building that we ended up investing in, but she was able to tell us about the neighborhood and what Mm -hmm. the supply and demand is like in that exact neighborhood uh, and about the property. So yeah, crowdsourcing that risk analysis is just huge. Yes, and again, it doesn't have to be our club, but you know, joining some kind of community of other real estate investors and getting their feedback, that can really help you reduce risk. And it, you know, it's funny, I was, I was speaking with a woman in our space a week or two back, and we were talking about how some of the biggest names in the commercial real estate and and private equity real estate fundraising in this space, the biggest names have collapsed the hardest over the last year. And I'm not going to name specific names, but the companies that everyone told us were like the really big, trustworthy, reliable names, those have been the ones that we've been really worried about (laughs) that that, that we invested with. Uh, And the smaller operators, the mom and pop operators who didn't get quite so far out ahead of their skis, right? Because they just didn't have the name power to raise massive funds just on their name alone. Those have actually been okay so far. Like you yourself as kind of a mom and pop operator running a a relatively small fund, your laundry fund's doing fine. (laughs) Right. So yeah, I, I think that there is something to that that A lot of the big names just got a little too big for their britches. They started relying on name recognition alone, uh, started focusing more on volume than on, on quality of the deals that they're doing. Um, Anyway, I don't, (laughs) there was a question buried in there somewhere, but I lost track of it.
1: No, no, I I think you're absolutely right. And, And I think the trick here is that there's not, it's not like there's a, there's a small or a big, that's the right answer. But I do think the way you said it was that crowdsourcing risk analysis is super powerful. Because you can put money with a big operator for good reason, and it can be a home run. It's just as well as you can with a small operator. And there's strengths that big operators can leverage in you know bad times where hopefully the key principles and people like that have the equity backing and the personal net worth and the balance sheet to make sure these things move forward. that Maybe the small operator couldn't. And conversely, there's things that the smaller operator can uncover that the big operator just has too much of a machine to feed to even begin to take down those smaller opportunities that may be just gold mines. Laundromats are a case in point for that. Like, they're generally we're under a million dollars per store, which I know a million dollars is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but it's not a hundred million dollar multifamily asset. And if you have a machine that has two hundred people on board that's going out and buying a hundred million dollar multifamily asset, you know, once every two months, well, and they need that giant bite in order to keep the machine fed. Well, a $1 million dollar laundromat's kind of kind of a nuisance. To a bigger operator, but yeah, that doesn't mean that there's not opportunity inside of those. So, all that said, and you said it very succinctly and much clearer than I did, crowdsource
0: your risk or your risk analysis because I think that's
1: incredibly powerful.
0: So, we were talking before the episode. You're on your 700 some episode with the How to Scale Commercial Real Estate podcast. You know, you you bring in these great sponsors, operators, GPs, whatever you want to call them. You know, professional investors who raise capital on their deals. So, you've interviewed more GPs than probably anyone else I've ever met. So I'm curious to hear some of your takeaways after 700 and some interviews of general partners, uh, you know, of, of people raising funds for these private equity real estate deals. What are some of the things that you have learned? And when you are currently uh, appraising deals to consider for your own investments, what are you looking for that maybe the average schmuck just you know, isn't thinking about? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and not to toot my own horn. We're almost at 900 episodes. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> so I stand corrected. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it um, which is it's been fun. You know, it's I've been honored to have that many that many people be willing to give their time and come on the show. It's been a lot of work, but it's also been very insightful. I you know, I, I think one is that there's been a lot of people out there that have lost a lot more money than I have. And I guess so that's, that's sure. kind of comforting in some respects where you're like, oh, like, well, suddenly I, I mean, a million dollars to me is a lot of money. I mean, a whole lot of money. But, you know, there's some stories out there where you just want to crawl in a hole and you see that they were able to somehow dig out. and You go, OK, you know what? So I don't have to learn the lessons the way they did. Uh, the other thing I think is that and this is kind of a, a lesson I'm learning right now is that I don't have to copy what everyone else is doing, like, there's part of me that wants to go, like, oh, hey, there's syndicator X, Y, and Z, and they went from zero employees to 300 employees in three years, and look, they, you know, I got 18 billion dollars in assets under management, and I'm like, I want to build something that's meaningful to my investors, that's meaningful to me, and meaningful to my family. That gives me my time back, and if that means I have a income that is 100th of the income of maybe some of these big syndicators and other people, so be it. So I think that's one of the things as I've interviewed people from across the spectrum from little mom and pop startups to people with, you know, 10 companies to I mean, I had, had, you know, I've had the CEOs of some of the actually the largest logistics company in the world on the show. And it's like, you know, I I don't have to go there. I don't need to go there necessarily. So finding finding, I guess, watching all of these people and because, you know, they say success leaves clues like that whole idea for me. This is kind of a personal, you know, just what I've learned is like, you know what? do, and and who said this? I was reading the book, um, Profit First, where he says like, hey, you know what? Don't grow for growth's sake. Just don't do it because so many people do. So I think that's one of the things as investors, we oftentimes think that, oh man, you know what? We absolutely must be investing in syndications. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Maybe a single family house is okay or five of those is okay. Maybe it's okay to stay small and manageable and keep it light and I don't know. So all that said, I think, I think at the end of it, I kind of looked at it and probably the number one thing I'm, I'm ingesting right now is the freedom to do what fits me and my family and my investor's lifestyle. And outside of that,
0: I'm not too worried about it. So hopefully that made some sense. If not, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it does make sense. And there is, there's, there's no right or wrong. Well, it's a lot of wrong ways to invest in real estate, but there's no one right way to invest right. in real estate. I mean, right. there, there are, Endless real estate investing strategies and niches, and there's not necessarily one that's better than the others. Um, right. I mean, and that's actually one of the core values of our investment club is diversification and mm-hmm. being able to invest with you know different sponsors every month and different cities every month, different types of properties every month, from self storage to mobile home parks, multifamily, you know RV parks, all that stuff, um, yep. to just get as much exposure to the market as possible, knowing that. You know, I don't have a crystal ball that's any clearer than anyone else's, but the law of averages is going to protect me in the long term. So, right. Right. Yeah. I had an investor call me today. He's like, hey, and, and you know,
1: savvy investor. But he said, hey, give me, give me a rating, you know, of all the things he's invested in. He's like, give me, give me a, a you know, an ABC rating on these. We, you know, we, we gave, we gave our ratings. There was, there was nothing that were C's, but, uh, you know, minus the deal I told you about last year that went completely belly up. Uh, that's, that's below C. Uh but, uh, <laughs> sorry, you gotta, you gotta laugh at some point in your life and just go, oh, well, gotta deal with it. Um, so yeah, but that's it. Like you said, law of averages figured out that, okay, you know, not everything's gonna be a home run, but you know, as long as you, as long as you again, you know, use we've said it many times here, but using people around you to help you vet your deals. And I think, I think that law of averages will come out much better in your favor.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned how there's not necessarily a need to invest in huge properties right and for many people investing in smaller deals makes sense i mean so uh, yeah i mean we've invested with like rise 48 which is enormous and then we've also invested with a guy who it was a deal of 11 little cabins that he rents as as short-term rentals right and we're about to bring in a guy who he's a house flipper single family house flipper and is looking for some some flex funding but he has a a big portfolio of rentals as well that he's putting up as collateral for the deal and it, i mean it uh, it's all but it's all single family homes right i mean it's and right. it's it's a small deal this is actually the first time that he's ever taken outside money from people that weren't friends or family so mm. uh, you know, there's there there are endless ways to approach real estate investing you know there are like, and i
1: will say this is one thing you know right now we're not taking in capital on the lp side It was kind of a strategic decision we've made earlier this month where it just said, hey, you know what? We can self-fund our growth from this point forward. Um, One thing we are doing, though, and this is something for people just to think about, maybe not necessarily with me, but with other people, is what does it look like to get get in on the debt side? So for me, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I want to loan you money, and here's the fixed interest terms, and this is what it looks like to repay that debt, man, we'll take debt all day against the right asset. Because one, it's easier for us to manage debt than it is for us to manage equity. Um, and two, right now, I think it's a great spot to be in debt just because not in debt, like as in acquiring debt, but in debt as in being the lender. Investing in it,
0: yeah. Yeah, right. Lending because money.
1: Right, because especially if you can get a first position, low loan to value, secured loan, like, man, okay, do that. Do that all day. Clip the coupon. Maybe it's 12, maybe it's 15%. You know, I, I, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm too schizophrenic and all over the place, but we've got our hands, like I said, in, in a lot of different things. And they're one of the, and I don't I have a partner of mine that uh, handles 99% of the work on this. So I have very little to do with it other than the funding side of it funding and getting us closed and kind of, you know, trading on some credit and other things. But we buy land all over the Southeast and we're always using short term debt on that. And they're just, I mean, they're quickly, and, and I, I got a lender, I've worked with him for gosh, eight years at this point. I just call him on the phone and say, hey, man, I need, you know, x number of dollars for this asset closed by then, and he's like, okay, great. And he's loaning loan to value, so we're buying stuff at half a market price. He's loaning on seventy percent of that. So what is seven times five? Thirty-five. So he's thirty-five percent of market value, all in on his loan, first position, and he's clipping twelve to fifteen percent, you know, on that money. So I think there's, and those opportunities are everywhere on the debt side. So I think that's another thing to think about especially right now, is that if there's opportunities to get first position with some low loan to cost or loan to value on the debt, I mean, that's, that's something that's, uh, that's a pretty compelling space right now, I think, for a lot of people.
0: Well, I agree. And we've done some note deals and some debt investments in our club, even outside of our investment club. I've got some personal money in private notes and in hard money loans um, that are secured. So I, I agree. It is a good place to be in right now. Um, you know, That being said, I've, I've heard a lot of people uh make that same case for for right now. And you and I were just talking before the show about uh, you know, being contrarian and you know just questioning, you know, the herd. And I actually I loved what you said earlier about how you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. And there's that interesting balance between being inventive, colouring outside the lines, but also not reinventing the wheel. So then and my art business model for the co-investing club. No one else is doing what we're doing. But it's also been really hard to make it profitable, you know? Right. So you know we have Plenty of people in the club and of course we're growing it every day but because we're doing something that's so different it's just it's hard to, <laughs> we're not following a tried and true business model. So right. yeah it's it's hard to to keep that or to make that profitable. You're not painting by numbers, right? You're kind of right. making it up as you go along. Um you know I want to be respectful of your time but there's a final question I want to ask you about you know just given your experience you know both raising funds and investing passively as an LP and just all of your deep experience in real estate What are some of the risks that you see in the current real estate market, particularly risks that maybe not enough people are talking about? And how are you approaching mitigating some of those risks?
1: Yeah, so several things. I mean, one risk I see, obviously, and this is nothing profound, uh, is short-term debt coming due. And that's really what got us pinched. Well, that was one of several things. One was, uh, but I won't go into the details on that story because we don't have time for it. But in general, be leery, I think of short-term debt fixed rate long term debt is the real estate investor's best hedge against inflation, so I mean think about that you get to borrow in dollars i I hadn't had no loan against my primary home until last year. I saw interest rates early early last year late twenty two late twenty two and I'm like, man, I should get a thirty year note on this house because interest rates are climbing inflation's off the out of the off the chain, so why not? do that and lock in a 30 year fixed note I get to borrowing dollars and repaying dimes like that that makes all the sense to me but that's long-term fixed interest rate debt so look out for short-term variable rate debt that's something I think that we're going to see a lot of that debt come due in 24 what is it's north of a trillion dollars is coming due this year so that's one thing that's kind of a no-go um and again, this is risk risk analysis. Um, I've made the mistake of investing in a syndicator's first time doing a particular asset class. And here we are five yeah. and a half years later with nary a penny in return. And we have multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money in that deal. And that's bloody painful. Five and a yeah. half years later, I'm like, golly, man, I could have put this in a CD and made more money. Um, <laughs> And it's still, it's still, it's still in the red month over month. And it's like, okay, well, I, I just hope at this point we get our money back. So those are some other things I think right now that are kind of painful. One thing that, that we're really stressing, and again, I'm not raising money for this. I got nothing to sell anybody, but that I am pot committed to is whatever I do, it needs to be inflation resistant and it must be cash flowing. So by inflation resistant cash flowing and recession resistant. So in the laundry business, I mean, behind food and shelter, the third thing most people want is clean clothes and our business boomed during the pandemic. And the only thing we see is just up into the right trajectory of it. It's like, well, okay, every store we build, every every store remodel, we take it from doing X to doing, you know, Y squared. And it's like, you know, the worse the economy gets, the, the better our business does. And we can reprice our stores. So think about that. We can reprice our stores daily like a gas station if we wanted to. We don't because that would get really annoying. But I yeah. <laughs> are like, oh, yesterday it was 875 and now it's nine and a quarter. And um, so whatever, you know, we don't do that. But all that said, so I'm looking for those things. So when you're looking at investments, I think, you know, not just being solely real estate focused is helpful, but finding, finding inflation and recession resistant businesses, cash flowing businesses, something else that's uh really part of my strategy right now i'm not swinging for the fences i'm swinging for stuff that it's like robert kiyosaki model find stuff right now that prints cash month over month over month and just stay in that lane and soon enough it'll become meaningful
0: well i love it and i know i said that was your last question i got one more one last fun one for you you were you were asking about uruguay before we hit the record button so i'm just curious about your fire escape plan your financial independence uh escape plan here what's the strategy
1: Man, that's a great question, Brian. And again, I'm contrarian. So just know that that's kind of the way I think. Yes, I have bug out bags. Yes, I have all the <laughs> stuff. Like even on the bug out bag, there's like, hey, grab these three things and run. Um, I do live in Memphis. So this is a, this is a present reality at any given time. Um, <laughs> so if you, if, you, if, you, if you own a television, you know what I'm talking about. But that said is that I think the US dollar has enjoyed incredible privilege over the last, what is it, 60, 80 years from Bretton Woods to you name it. We have lived on the trading power of the dollar. The dollar has, you know, the world's reserve currency, you know, this whole time. And somebody said it here maybe 10 years ago. They said, when you start seeing oil traded in things other than dollars, because, you know, the petrodollar is what the world has traded oil on, so then you know that the end of the dollar is nearing. And we're, and we're seeing that now. The dollar is getting traded. I mean, look, we've printed. How many trillions and trillions and trillions of, you know, just fake money. And so the world soon enough, they've been buying all of our bonds and buying all this stuff, but our government's broke. I mean, they're flat broke. And so when the hens come home to roost, I think it's going to happen kind of without warning. And then we're going to be going, oh, crud. Now, what do we do? So for me, a, you know, a second passport, it's literally the the very top item on my financial to do list as it's taped to my, um, taped to my mirror in my bathroom. So like I'm brushing my teeth and it's sitting right there. It says second passport. Uh, and so that's, I mean, again, you know, there's nothing wrong with a get out of jail free card. You can play it anytime you want. And, uh, Uruguay is a great country. I mean, everything I read about it. Yeah. It's not the most geographically, uh, exciting place. It's pretty flat. I think The highest elevations, like 1500 feet, which I love the mountains. So there's not really much there in the way of that, but it is, Independent, um, it, is, it is a food-independent, energy-independent country that has a very conservative—I don't even like that word because nobody even knows what conservative means anymore—but but has a very kind of freedom-minded government system, and I think that's that's important for anywhere you want to go if you don't want to get if you don't want to get bled to death by taxes and overbearing governments. Man, that's um, that's kind of one of the places at the top of my list. So there, there you go. Those are my thinking. Or that is my thinking behind why
0: Uruguay. Well, I love Uruguay. I visited once. Um, yeah, politically stable and centrist. Um, you know, it's a, it's economically stable and centrist. Right. Great wine. <laughs> great wine. Great beef. <laughs> great. Uh, and right across the river from Argentina. So, and there you do have skiing and mountains, and you've got the major city of, of Buenos Aires. And anyway, Sam, thank you so much for hopping on today. This was a blast. You know, I, we hope to have you back soon. So, thanks again. Thank you, Brian, for having me. It's great to see you again, as always. All right, guys, if you enjoy these conversations that we have on here, please rate, review the show. It means the world to us and reach out anytime, support at sparkrunnel.com and we will catch you on the flip side. Did you know we offer a free eight video course on how to reach financial independence with real estate? It's super bingeable with each video around 10 minutes long, but packed with information.